It is worth it. This is a $40 billion TAM. It is worth it to be in this space. It is a smart head strategy as your company matures. It is possible to make wins, but it is slow and you got to be patient. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? I am your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Pretty <laughs> excited to be joined by a uh, longtime friend, someone I've admired greatly throughout the community, and I think someone who almost needs no introduction. Uh, Mr. Josh Marcuse. So thanks for spending some time together today, brother. Happy to be in the trenches with you, Tyler. Heck yeah. For like the two people watching who maybe don't know who you are. Sure. You give us a little bit of the background, the story, and sort of what you're doing now, what you're working on now. Sure. Absolutely. So right now I'm working at Google Public Sector. I'm the director of strategic initiatives there and have been at Google for three and a half years. That came after close to 15 years of working in DOD as a contractor and as a civilian. And I think of it really as the thing that inspired me in my last few years working in DOD most was building the bridge between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. So the way I think about my role now is I spent my last four years in DOD building the bridge from one direction, and now I've come to Google working on the same bridge, building it from the other direction so I tell people, you know, same battlefield, different foxhole. But it's really all about what we're doing to drive tech adoption. And that's what makes me feel like we're having an impact, making a difference, moving the needle, pushing the boulder up the hill. So it's it's exciting to be on the other side. And then also, you know, there's a lot of other fun stuff we do together that I think are sort of part of being like good gardeners of the of the community steward stewards. Silicon Valley Defense Group. I run a nonprofit organization called Globally. Work with a tech talent project. Tech talent's an issue I'm really passionate about, as you know, with some of the different think tanks that are working on these issues. Because it just, you can't solve any one of these problems with just writing a policy paper or awarding a contract. Like It really takes this kind of all of the team getting off the bench on the field, doing it together. So that's kind of my story. I love it. There's a whole bunch of places, you know, want to want to take the conversation. I'm going to start sort of with that tech talent aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I think you and I have spent years sort of on different sides of the table and in different rooms trying to sort of bring all of these different constituencies together. And to your point on, hey, this isn't necessarily a policy memo. I think at times when we talk about sort of defense tech or national security technology, we're talking about it like it is a hey, fix this procurement thing or fix this policy thing. We're maybe like glossing over the sort of humanity of it. I would be interested sort of in your assessment on sort of current state of mm. tech sort of expertise and leadership sort of in broader PubSec and how folks should be thinking about one, coming into it from the outside or two, sort of incenting and reaching out to use your bridge analogy. Right. How do we create sort of more two-way bridges between the technical communities? Sure. This, this is the signature issue for me. I mean, I am not 
a technologist by training, and I uh, don't don't really see myself as a as a tech executive. I mean, I really began running a leadership development organization in OSD policy. I've been a people person from the start, and the the thing that propelled me into this question about great power competition and technology was actually being on the force of the future task force that Secretary Carter established in 2015, which viewed this lens of modernization and American competitiveness exclusively through the lens of talent. So where I think many people view it as an afterthought or they see it as kind of the the fifth chapter of your five-chapter study where they say, and by the way, also culture, or and by the way, also talent. For me, it is front and center. And the reason for that is that when we were working at the Defense Innovation Board with Eric Schmidt and all of those leaders, we ended up with this aphorism that really became like the bumper sticker for the whole four years at, at DOD, which was what Eric said in his 2016 congressional testimony, which was a, a masterwork, if I may say, and sadly still relevant today. And what he said was, DOD doesn't have an innovation problem. It has an innovation adoption problem. And then from that, I went on to say, once we've diagnosed the issue as one not of inventing new technologies, but of adopting them, the skills you need for inventing are not the same skills you need for adopting. Now we're talking about organizational psychology. We're talking about behavioral economics. We're talking about incentives, accountability, organizational design, organizational structure. So where much of the department's innovation ecosystem, shall we say, was thinking about data, cloud, software, AI, hypersonics, quantum computing, you know, name your thing, commercial space, all these technical issues, we have to talk about all those things. Those things are all important, as is the acquisition policy rules and all that. All those things are important. But every time we run into one of these areas, my mind and my heart immediately goes to imagining the GS-14 in the cubicle, imagining the mechanic on the flight line, imagining the kernel of the group of the squadron trying to solve the problem. And I think about all the things that have to happen to get that technology or capability into the hands of the person that needs to use it. And all of those challenges are really a combination of policy and behavior and incentives and, and culture. And I really look at all these issues through that lens. So we can we can go deep into different aspects of it. Do we have the right technical talent? Are we empowering them? Do they have the right tooling to use their talent or their gifts? We could talk about these different workforce issues on the uniform side, on the civilian side. But the opening gambit I would put to you is it's not a tack on. Yeah. It's the thing. Yeah. It is the thing. And we could spend... 5x the amount of money on quote-unquote innovation, however you want to define it. We could rejigger the budget and drive tons of money into R&D or into O&M for new systems or any of those changes you want to make. We could see dozens of new authorities being given to the department to, you know, anything you want. You're, you're, imagine your fantasy on yearless, colorless money, anything you want. You would not see any changes unless you addressed what is driving and motivating the human beings that are interacting with these policies, these budgets, these things? And, and so we have seen many new capabilities, new authorities, yep. new you name it, 
and then been disappointed by the outcome. And I think that's because we are not addressing with adequate focus and attention these organizational challenges. What is that? I mean, agree. But what does that look like, right? Like, so flip it around and not saying, hey, like name names or anything. Sure. But like, what does that look like? And as, you know, we're we're hurtling into an election year and right. post-election, there's going to be sort of this new, the new leadership team sort of in the department. What organization takes a lead on that? What does that sort of look like at like the practical implementation side of it? Absolutely. So I I will give you three three ideas. I'm not in the weeds of the specifics, but three conceptual ideas that I think are important. And the first one is we still have an industrial age culture in the department. And we think about the stories we tell ourselves, the mythology of our greatest moment. Every organization's culture is set by that moment that they believe is the apotheosis of their values and their ideals. And I believe for DOD, that is Normandy. And so when we ask people to think about the last time they felt the most proud of our country and our military, I think that, I think they think about what we did then and there and the courage and the heroism and the sacrifice. But from a acquisition standpoint, right, that was the mobilization of the defense industrial base for mass industrial scale production. And the idea there evolved into um, the total quality management movement and Deming and this whole notion really during the 60s and 70s that the way you got to quality and scale and mass production was through consistency. So we have this notion of mass production of all aspects of our culture. And you combine that with this attitude about uh, Elon of American forces and the way we train our NCOs and the sort of rugged individualism of the American spirit gives rise to this idea that if anyone should fall on the battlefield, there's someone else that is capable of just taking their spot. And it creates the sense between these two things that Everything is just interchangeable. People are interchangeable. Stuff is interchangeable. We don't really want to optimize for things being unique. And we really want to think about things at scale. Yep. And that mm. is not the mental model of how innovation occurs. If you flip it and you think about what is the popular culture around entrepreneurship in America, and now entrepreneurs are celebrated by you know Gen Z, like athletes and artists, right? We have this now cult of the of the entrepreneur and the lone creative genius, we have an equally incorrect idea about what it takes to make innovation in the commercial world, where we have this notion of it's the entrepreneur living out of his car, you know, nobody believes in his idea, but then he has some sort of breakthrough and everyone thinks he's crazy, but then he turns out to be a genius and it's the solitary genius theory. And that is also equally incorrect. That has nothing to do with the reality of what it takes to be disruptive and to be entrepreneurial and to be innovative. And so the combination of these two cultural sort of icons has led to a total absence of understanding of really what would it look like to foment and encourage a culture of innovation and entrepreneurship in the military. The reality is instead that it is true. There are specific personality traits that we can select for and optimize for in leaders that are designed to operate in a countercultural environment and operate in ambiguity and uncertainty. And it is also true that those people require an ecosystem. They don't work alone. They have to have groups. 
And so one of the things Ash Carter used to talk about is not tearing down the walls, but boring holes through the walls. And we interpreted that idea as this notion of precision versus bulk. And so when we think about talent management and human capital, we tend to think about it in the industrial model that I described. And if you want to try to change something that large, you know, 2 million souls as civilians are in uniform across one of the largest organizations on the planet, you can't change that organizational design or that culture or those prevailing norms overnight. So you can't design the entire system for those behaviors. What we need to do instead is instead of making bulk transformation, we have to think about precision transformation, creating individual organizations and units, not just one at DIU, but marbled throughout the organization that are optimized to operate for different rules. And instead of saying, okay, well, we're going to use the one-size-fits-all policy where we're going to treat all general managers of units, like you know, all of your first sergeants or all of your sergeants or all of your lieutenant colonels the same. Instead, we have to think about creating a cadre of people that have been selected for their cognitive traits, for their for their psychological traits, selected. And instead of treating their rabble-rousing, renegade, countercultural behaviors as being things that we need to optimize against, we have to think about doing things that we optimize for. So whereas I hear personality-driven as a pejorative term used everywhere. I mean, like, well, that, you know, I'll give you a very specific example in a moment. You know, well, you know, that won't last. It won't scale. It's personality driven. That's bad. I see it completely the opposite. We understand that we want to optimize certain personality traits for all kinds of different fields, combat medics, special operators, test pilots, you name it, right? And so we just need to, you know, think about having a, selection, recruitment, training, rewards, and a process for people that are designed to be kind of innovation officers, innovation commanders, one of those leaders, because we are optimizing for a different set of, of traits and skill sets. And we're not trying to change the entire general purpose force or all of the infantry to look like Silicon Valley. That's obviously a recipe for catastrophe. And a straw man argument that many people level against the kinds of changes that we like to see. Yeah. Instead, we're saying like, okay, let's be specific. There's a certain type of organization that I need in certain quantities, and I need to have a certain kind of leader with a certain skill set. And instead of dismissing it as personality-driven, we're going to say that's not a bug, that's a feature. I actually want to optimize and design for having leaders that operate and think that way. And by the way, this is not a weird frontier of social science. The most widely used personality test is the big five personality test, the Hogan. And one of the five is openness to new ideas. And I was told that there was a study done by the army that showed that there was an inverse correlation between openness to new ideas and being selected for command at 06. <laughs> and so we are optimizing for a promotion system over decades that is seeking compliance behavior and seeking excellence, right? People that are trying to drive slow, gradual, incremental improvements of consistent behaviors, not people that are experimental in their and willing to take appropriate risks. Because again, we have this idea that the commander at the 06 level, the GS-15 general manager is being optimized for consistency at industrial scale. And let's talk about what we see being the real story of innovation at all these companies. It's not just Steve Jobs. What it actually is, 
and this is the work of Clayton Christensen and the and the work of Adam Grant and his book Originals and on all of the social science around what generates entrepreneurial behavior in large organizations, intrapreneurship rather than entrepreneurship. What works is they all end up creating some small organization, probably in another building, with you know what Jeff Bezos would call two pizza teams. They are very clear requirements. They're having frequent interaction with users. They have lots of time and budget pressure, and they're off doing something else because they are not an execution organization. They're an exploration organization. These are the same ideas that Steve Blank and the whole crew at Hacking for Defense have talked about. It's the same ideas that Eric Reese writes about in, in his Relene startup, right? Yep. So we need organizations like that. So what I heard all the time is, why do we have 10 software factories? Then I heard, why does DoD have 20 software factories? Now I hear people complaining, why do we have 40 software factories? Well, it's for a very simple reason. If you're a modern software developer, you're using some form of agile software development methodology, which means you've escaped the mindset and you're now in a more experimental mindset. And so the reason that we have all these different software factories or all these different works or the different organizations is that you have groups of people that want to operate according to a different set of norms, right? They they're have a different software, a different operating system for their organization. And they're acting that way because they've latched onto the places in our economy where that kind of behavior is encouraged and supported. And, that, and that's what I would do. I would just create these oases of places where we are using these different ideas to allow them to operate differently. And you wouldn't need to have all the organization do it. You would need to have about 15% because that's whatever Rogers tells us the innovation adoption curve. That's all you would need. So as you talk about sort of building, right? Building, I heard, I heard some change management sort of theory in there on, you know, finding small wins and early adopters and champions and sort of celebrating that, right? And sort of breaking, sort of breaking that down into consumables, but in a way that's going to set up broad adoption. Flip that around and talk about what it's been like sort of doing something similar at Google public sector, sort mm -hmm. of a new line of business. I see a lot of parallels in there. Large organization. I know everyone thinks Google's sort of like people playing ping pong <laughs> and like pinwheel hats and everyone's on scooters, but like, yeah, it's a big effing organization it doing is. a lot it of is. bureaucratic sure. work. Sure. So give me what it's been like sort of at the implementation layer. And like, what have you learned? What has been maybe validated or new ideas that you've come up with coming through actually putting some of this into into practice as you're building a new organization. Absolutely. So, I mean, when I joined, you know, we hadn't even formed Google public sector yet. At that point, we were really in the earliest days of, of Google's journey to public sector, getting really serious about it. I mean, Google actually was doing small contracts with the government for decades, but we really started to focus on public sector as a market around the time that Thomas Kermian became the CEO of Google Cloud. And the investment and the focus really started to increase because he had come from a company where a public sector was always an anchor of their business, and he'd always known that it was important. And so he came in making it an emphasis and a priority. And that was part of what motivated me to want to join, because I wanted to build Google's chapter of its history around public sector and be part of that. Google is an extraordinary company. It has an incredible pull on the zeitgeist of the country and the technology community. It is, it's a legendary and historic place where incredible technology has been born, but it hadn't yet really answered the question of what all that technology would mean for public servants and public service and the citizens of the world. Yeah. 
it had certainly figured out what it meant for the citizens of the world from a consumer technology yeah. lens, but it hadn't really come up with what the answer was for supporting the governments of the world and all the critical missions government plays for citizens. And that was incredibly attractive to me, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build something that could have you know, incredible impact. You know, billions of daily active users. So you imagine taking that scale of intra infrastructure and that capacity to invent and to innovate and now try to solve mission-driven problems with that. I was like, okay, that that is a worthy yeah. use of a decade of your life, yeah. right? So... The difficulty, though, is, you know, 99% of the company it doesn't understand the public sector market and all the challenges it has and all the unique aspects of it that make we love it and hate it and all those things. And so one of the innovation adoption curves we're driving is the inside Google. Yeah. And we're saying, you know, these are all the different things you need to learn to be a mature enterprise player in the public sector market. Yeah. There is a ton that you have to do and get over to be a serious competitor in the space. And that journey is continuing. I think the turning point for us was when we established Google Public Sector and we hired Karen Dayhut, yeah. my boss, and uh, built out that team. And, and there's, there's been a lot of milestones, but it's clear that we are we are now committed and, and going down that path. But we in Google Public Sector are very much, I would say, in the mission-driven solution development space, very customer-facing we are not the massive engineering organization that builds the products. We're not, we're not really a product organization. So there is this process of like, I think of us as like, we're the two and a half percent of the innovators. We are identifying our allies that are the early adopters throughout the engineering organization that are building the things that we are bringing to the public sector. And then, you know, there's this whole rest of the organization that we bring along with us as we're trying to, you know, help them make that transformation then there's the innovation adoption curve on the customer side. And this is what I evangelize to our teams all the time, which is I say, our customer has a very specific persona, right? Our customer is a pioneer, is an early adopter. They are attracted to the mystique of Google because they see us as a culture of innovation as early adopters. And they want to look us in the eye and be on the same wavelength, saying like, hey, I have a vision for what I want to do in my agency. I want to do something amazing with AI. I want to do something incredible with data. You know, I want to have a Gmail-like user experience for collaboration in my organization. They have a vision. And so what I tell people is, is you can't show up and be like, let me sell you some commodity compute and store. That is not our customer. Maybe one day we're going to do some of that. But we have a very specific persona in mind, which is people who are hungry for change. They are, tend to be more technical. They tend to be more mission-driven. They are not the people that want to just take the standard issue, whatever the government gives them. They want to go improve things. And so we want them to see us as our innovation partner of choice. So we're not always going after some you know, large general purpose storage in the cloud versus storage on-prem. That that's not interesting. We we are measured on 10x growth. Like what is the 10x solution? So we are looking for customers that that are inspired by wanting to build together. And then, you know, I hope if we're successful at that, one day we can do both, right? Yeah, we could get you, there's right. a logical progression that's sort yeah, of Yeah, well, you know, one, you yeah. know, one day we can we can compute excuse me, we can compete with everyone on compute and store commodity prices and that's just, you know, how the market evolves. Yep. But at, we're at this early stage, you know, I'm really looking for and working with teams to look for people that have something audacious in mind. And I think that that's what makes 
you know, that's what makes the prospect working Google exciting. And so we we aim specifically for them and for their needs. And, and I think people ask me about retention. Is you know, the good news is is you don't need to worry about retention when you're working on problems like that. Not on the government side and not on the not for the tech companies either. Yeah. But you know, people are well paid and that's great. That's table stakes. You want to take that compensation off the table, but really what they're looking for is a sense of purpose. Yeah. And, you know, I have all these conversations with people in the government. It's like, oh, we can't afford to compete for talent. You know, we're losing all these people, all these companies, whatever. And I, I honestly think that's really BS. The really talented engineers that I have worked with in government or that I, or I've seen leave government never left over a paycheck. They all left because they felt their talents were being wasted. They felt they were being led and managed by people that didn't understand the technology and the mission and the change they were seeking. And they felt that they didn't have an opportunity to use their gifts. And they left frustrated, not because they were excited to make more money. They were left frustrated because couldn't do what they, they couldn't do what yeah. they wanted to do, right? They had a gift they wanted yep. to give. They had a purpose they wanted to fulfill. They wanted to serve. And eventually they just got so frustrated that they realized like, I have to leave government to serve government and I'm going to have a bigger impact in the private sector and the public sector. And they left for those reasons. And that's not about money, right? Yep. That's all about the first thing we talked about, yep. about talent. Yep. Some of those people went on to found unicorn companies. Yeah. They're world-class engineers. I mean, we just, I won't say him by name. I don't have his permission. But we just we just hired an incredible data scientist who is every bit qualified to be a Google data scientist. He's exactly the sort of person that DoD says we can't afford. Well, he wanted to stay. He didn't want to leave. Like he wanted to serve. He's you know was in the Navy for for over a decade. He came to us out of frustration. And so the issue is not how does DoD compete with Google for talent. It's just like Google. Google is willing to hire great talent, but we don't want to poach from the government. The government just needs to figure out how to retain the people yeah. they have. Yeah. They have Google quality have software, AI, they're yeah. all there. How do you enable and empower how them? How do you enable and empower them? Yeah. They're recruiting out of high schools across the country. We are not. Yep. They have the raw talent there. Yep. They If they had an APM program in government, the way we have an APM for our associate product manager program that you know Eric Schmidt and Marissa Mayer created at Google, they could have that program there. 100%. And if they did, they could have the same quality engineering workforce that we do. And, you know, one day maybe they'll go to go make more money, but like they're willing to give huge five, 10, 15, yeah. 20 years of quality service. Yep. So we're now not capturing, not capturing. And so what we think now is like, now I'm really passionate about this idea of civic duty leave, Yeah. which is given the state of the situation on tech talent now, how do we find ways to create pathways for people that are in the tech sector at companies like mine, but Amazon and Microsoft and, you know, all of them as yep. well, and give them a chance to serve in government for a couple of years and have that mixing. We have yeah. a great, we have great pathways for people in government, in uniform, to do six months a year in industry. One of my favorites is Shift, yep. Defense Ventures. I absolutely think this is one of the most incredible programs we're going to be talking at their conference next week. Yeah. Shift is amazing at giving people six weeks uh, you know, people in uniform six weeks to experience Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road, tech companies like yep. you know, like ours, which is incredible. What's the reverse? Yeah. And we need more. We need a lot more of that. I'm going to work on that for a couple of years. That's that's a really interesting interesting way to frame it. So two more questions, sort of as we turn the corner here. Well, I'd be really interested playing on that 
finding and sort of empowering and identifying maybe internal resistance or folks you've got to maybe communicate a little bit more about like, what does it mean in pub sec? What is it or what is it not? You know, you guys have the interesting spot sort of at Google. I guess it's like massive scale. I think there are a bunch of folks who will be sort of watching or listening to this that are maybe at, you know, a commercial sort of software, right? Like a normal sort of enterprise size commercial software who maybe they're sort of dipping their toes into PubSec. And there's like a GM of PubSec, sure. maybe a rep. Yep. And they're working with their ELT or, yeah. you know, their board, probably similar to how you had to sort of reach across into pure Google, not just PubSec, and start to explain what things are, what things aren't, create sort of build rapport in a way that like when you guys say, hey, engineers who build things, we need a thing that looks like this. How do you get that prioritized? So what would be like a piece of advice or two sure. to that, that team that's trying to communicate with a, a non-PubSec organization? Sure. I mean, and it won't surprise you. I, I talk to companies like this once a week, uh, either because they're thinking of doing business with Google or because we're coming into Silicon Valley Defense Group or because it's part of the hat I wear with capital G, which, you know, as Alphabet is an investment arm. And in, in some cases, these are series C and D companies that are incredibly mature commercially. They may have over a hundred million in revenue. They're, they're doing great, but they're at the stage where they're at. Okay. Now I want to, I want to understand the public sector. So we are seed and a stage companies are like, Hey, we want to ride this wave of excitement around public sector. And we want to be a defense first company, or we want to be a public sector first company all the way up to companies that have built massive commercial businesses. And now they're thinking about both for the first time. And one of the first things I tell them, and and mostly if I can get a chance to do so, tell their boss is you have to be patient and manage expectations. It is worth it. This is a $40 billion TAM. It is worth it to be in this space. It is a smart head strategy as your company matures. Um, it is possible to make wins, but it is slow and you got to be patient. Second thing I tell them is don't reinvent the wheel. Don't hunt alone. Hunt in a pack. There's more than enough opportunity to go around. And a lot of the early opportunities are on a peanut butter spread, you know, and, you know, SBIR. And so you're not always locked in a kind of head-to-head zero-sum winner-take-all competition. In fact, I actually think that it's the opposite. One of the things I appreciate about the big primes is that they are competitors or they're frenemies. They compete fiercely for contracts, but then when the contracts are awarded, they often are in teaming arrangements. And I think that it's the same for us as well. What we are competing against is not each other. We are competing against the status quo. We are competing against inertia. So I often think that when I look across the table at you know Microsoft or Amazon, I often think to myself, what percent of penetration into cloud adoption are we today? You know, what, 5%, 10%? This is this is not over. Yeah. Rather, like the the way to, the way to have growth is to drive modernization. Yep. All three of the hyperscale cloud providers are going to grow astronomically if we can get the government to fully adopt cloud, think strategically about data, yep. and move into you know the era of machine learning and all these things. And it's less of a competition between us as it is about working together 
to help the department climb the innovation adoption curve. And of course, if there's a task award on JWCC, are, are we going to compete ferociously against each other sure. for that? Yeah. Of course we will. And then when it's pencils down and the awards are set, we have to go back to teaming up together yep. to think about the bigger prize, which is how are we modernizing the government? And even if you're you know, a very small ISV or a small startup, it's very similar. They can really have a lot more influence banding together and sharing a lot of knowledge and a lot of insight with each other. And I think we've seen in the last five years the emergence of a new kind of consulting firm that's become very popular in D.C. that's really just trying to explain how the department buys and how the department works yep. and how Washington works to these companies. And I think one of the things that's really promising about Silicon Valley Defense Group or other kinds of organizations like that is, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for these companies to work together and band together and operate a little bit more like a trade association. Yeah. Think of themselves a little bit more as having interests in common rather than competition. And the reason why that's so important is because they need to influence the way Washington operates, the way Congress thinks about this market, and the way DOD buys. And they have a lot more influence together. Like, I really appreciate, for example, that, you know, we now have large groups of venture capitalists trying to speak with one voice about the importance of fully funding DIU or having a uh, office of strategic capital, these sorts of things. They're trying to present DOD with a kind of aligned and integrated voice because the traditional defense industrial base has massive organizations like NDIA, AIA, AUSA, who can speak with a voice about these interests. And I think it's really better for everyone to have groups of these organizations that can try to express really important ideas about what is working and is not working yeah. And to kind of aggregate some of that influence. So what I tell people is, I said, you know, be patient, hire great talent, be patient, give that talent a chance to work its magic and learn from each other. Like, for example, all of this accreditation, authority to operate, morass that is your bread and butter where you live. You do not need to go into a dark room by yourself in a closet and try to figure out how to get accredited by yourself. Like, no one should do that anymore. Agreed. Right now, we really need to think about, okay, how do we create pipelines of capability into the government's environments? Yep. And we do that by operating together in groups. We think about, you know, aggregating solutions in groups. We should be thinking about continuous ATO as a community of companies that live or die by whether or not they get these ATOs. That is equally important for everyone and that is a customer inside the government that needs access to the SaaS. And like... We shouldn't be trying to do that individually. Correct. Like that is a very important thing for these companies to be like, okay, you guys are going to have to team up to figure out how to one, get through this very narrow crack, this very narrow crevice in the wall that is blocking you out. But then, you know, if you want to tear that wall down, you want to remodel that, you're going to have to do that as a group. That's right. And I think it's important to highlight the power of that voice when these folks are coming together and we're like building community at scale. I think we're starting to really see dividends from that, which leads into sort of the final question. Okay. Here, right. Josh is we've talked through thinking about the department and sort of empowering and enabling and maybe reimagining parts of it. We've talked about transforming large organizations into those that are able to work with and through and support sort of public sector, right? We've talked about creating community and unified voice and really having an impact on the market and the mission. Mm -hmm. We also talked about a bunch of the challenges in there. 
Yeah. So if you've got, you know, King Josh for a day, you've got the magic wand, you wave it, you can fix sort of change one thing. What is it and why? It's actually not hard. Budget. The planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process is broken. Yeah. It is deeply, deeply flawed. It is designed for the industrial scale that I talked about at the start of our talk. It is not optimized for the speed at which a software-defined economy or a software-defined battlefield occurs. And when I was in a position to try to influence change in government, I was discouraged by every mentor from tackling PPBE. Everyone said, it's too hard. It's too entrenched. Politically, it's a third rail. There's no constituency for changing it. It has been optimized th through craft and adaptation over decades for each of the stakeholders to maximize their power and influence over their sliver. And no one is going to allow you to pry that power and influence out of their hands, whether that is congressional leaders, whether that is the industrial-based players that have captured the vast majority of the discretionary budget of the department and the acquisition budget of the department, or it's the individual program executive offices and the pressures they're under and how they plan their budget. And so they said it's not solvable. But that is a suicide pact. Because when we think about era of great power competition against, you know, a nation state that is, you know, going to have a larger economy, a larger population is using civil military fusion and all the techniques that they're using. And now we're dealing with not only great power competition, but we've seen that we have to deal with terrorism in the Middle East, tragically not done. You know, the horrific situation, Russia, Ukraine, you know, that is also there. Like we're not going to have the luxury of just focusing on problems. So, so if we are planning in five to seven year cycles with no agility, how do we compete? What is the democratic response to civil military fusion if we are hands tied in allocating capital in a nimble fashion? So that's why the Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution Commission is the most important conversation happening in Defense Innovation Washington right now. If we can drive real meaningful change in that process, we give ourselves a shot. If we can't, then you go back to where we were talking before about these, you know, disruptive organizations, these countercultural organizations, you know, these, these different places throughout the department. And the great news is, and I'm so proud and I'm so happy is like, there are more of them than ever. Right. And that is amazing. The problem is they're mostly broke. And we believed for 20 years, and I, I dedicated a decade to this. We believed that if you solved the acquisition challenges and Congress gave DOD the authorities that it needed, we would solve this. And the truth is, is that what we've demonstrated is that it can be solved. OTAs, middle tier acquisition, you know, the way in which we've reimagined SBIR, like we have shown that the authorities can be used to incredible effect, but we just don't have the capacity to move them. They don't have enough people. Yep. They don't have enough dollars. And so if you look at our budget today, my favorite exercise is like, ask people to guess what percent of the budget goes into what I would describe as the innovation economy of DOD. 1%, 2% of the total budget. Like maybe, let's just say the R&D budget. Let's just say what, 4%, 5%. Yep. Like 
I don't want to get into an ecumenical conversation about how you code it, but let's just imagine generously that like all of DIU and all of DARPA and, you know, all of those organizations plus all the labs plus, you know, any, you know, any of these groups working in machine learning, whatever CDAO is spending, you roll it all together. Like what percentage of the total spend is that? It's got to be less than 5%. Yeah, it's still a rounding error. Mostly optimistically. And yeah. like it could be 2% depending on how you count. Yeah. And if you ask like an average household in America that's saving for their retirement, you know, what percentage of your of your retirement do you want to have in, you know, something that has the opportunity to like have a little bit of growth to it, a little pep, you know, versus putting everything in just like like 30-year bonds, right? Like no one would say 99-1. Yeah. Most people say, you know, maybe 80-20. So imagine a world in which we actually had, let's say, 20% of that budget that was genuinely flexible. And all of the organizations that were operating according to the cultural norms that we talked about, the exploration organizations, not the execution organizations, they were doing not only just the sort of prototyping research, but thinking about getting from prototypes to scale and like being able to move things into scale in like like successive S-curves that look just like the S-curves on consumer electronics. Like imagine that we have the ability to move enough resources to climb the innovation adoption curve fast enough to get to tipping points. We are stalling out between 10 and 20% every time. Yep. That is the turning point that Rogers described between when you go from the early adopters to the early majority. And that means that we are stalling out somewhere in the early majority every time, and we're never getting to the tipping points over the crest of the, of the curve. And it's just because we just never have enough resources in the early stages it to reach escape velocity. Yeah, yeah. So it's like everyone thinks like, oh, the valley of death. Like maybe the valley of death is not about the valley at all. It's just like whatever vehicles are meant to cross the valley are just running out of fuel and they're falling into it. Yep. Like imagine that you just like gave enough fuel on the tank, you could just fly over the valley of death. Like we wouldn't be using that analogy gas anymore. Gas station right in the middle. Yeah. No, like, yeah, exactly. Just yeah. tired. And so that's to me is the thing that's holding us back. We have the people, we have the authorities, we've created the organizational structures. We can't say that we no longer have a defense industrial base to support us. Actually, Silicon Valley is now pouring Super money vibrant. Yeah. into these communities. You know, we have the deconsolidation of the defense industrial base. Like we have everything pointing in the right direction, right? We've elevated DIU. We've created CDAO. Like we've launched Replicator. We didn't even talk about Replicator yet. I think Replicator is amazing. Um, incredibly promising, obviously risky, but like good that we're taking yeah, risks. What isn't? Yeah. Things are headed in the right direction. But if we cannot figure out how to allocate money every year instead of in seven year cycles, it's just never going to make it. We're just never going to make it. So I put all my ch chits on PPE commission. We're counting on them it's something that everyone should focus on. It's very hard to fix. But the PPE Commission has made some good recommendations. They're not as bold as I wish they were. I would have liked to have something that was even more disruptive. But what this means is that we need to take their furthest reaching proposals and we need to push them in the next two or three years. Yeah. I love the focus on the stall out. Right. And thinking about, hey, you know, we've sort of solved front door, right? We've we've built the right sort of human capital landscape. We've built the right, in many ways, the organizational structure. How are we making sure that as initiatives are starting to come to fruition, as they're starting to to maybe transition over, they're all just not dying. And we don't have to then stand up 80 different micro programs on how to do it. I think that is 
that is something that folks that are listening can take away and even think about as they're doing sort of transformation in their own organization, right? How are good ideas making sure that they can get past sort of ideation, they can get past, you know, an MVP and they can get up into, into sort of scale and adoption. And I love that. Yeah. And I mean, listen, I, just, I, I, I will just talk about this because it just never gets talked about enough. I don't think that senior leaders, and especially I don't think congressional leaders understand the level of heroics required to just get stuff done. And so they look at transition rate or they look at what's going to production or they get frustrated about prototypes. And what they don't see is there's just these invisible taxes and headwinds on everyone, everyone that is trying to do something new and novel. And there's two types. First is every single one of these non-conforming organizations, whether whatever you want to call them, innovation formations, works, whatever, innovation software, whatever, just call them non-conformists. Every one of these non-conforming organizations is in a fight for survival from day one. People are coming for them from all directions. They are trying to take their budget. They're trying to take their billets. They're trying to take their reservists. They are evaluating them. The number of assessments, evaluations, and prove to me that you should exist conversations they have is orders of magnitude beyond what they get in all the PEOs. When we see something that is has a, a cost schedule and performance issue in an ACAT1 program, that's just Tuesday, right? If you have a cost schedule performance issue and some organization is trying to use an OTA or is trying to do agile software development or like... Whatever, you know, like, you know, the, the level of scrutiny and anxiety that creates is enormous. And then every time you do a change of command, there is the immediate danger that unique culture that has been carefully curated and preserved evaporates, goes away, you know, because you're always one change of command away from not actually being nonconformist anymore. You have so many people that are trying to either eliminate your organization entirely or force you into the same pegs that everyone else is in. And you are spending so much of your time and energy on just surviving. And then you spend a next enormous tranche of your time and energy just trying to pay for anything. Because unlike everyone that is part of a standard POM process, right, everything for you is non-standard. And everything is, you know, some, some clever. So like one of my favorite examples was, you know, everyone said, you know, Think of the early days of SCO under Will Roper. Look how amazing they were. They were working with COCOMs and getting, you know, they were getting the requirements of the COCOMs. They were short-circuiting the JSIDs process. They were moving to what, what the warfighter really needed and circumventing OT&E and how amazing it was, OPA, other, you know, OPM, other people's money, right? Great. But let's stop and think about what you're saying. What you're saying is, is like, we're going to have an organization dedicated to just fighting ourselves to try to figure out how to deliver needs. Like imagine what creative engineering geniuses at Strategic Capabilities Office might have come up with if they spent 80% of their time solving mission problems instead of spending 40% of their time trying to figure out how to embezzle innovation into the department and smuggle money out of COCOMs. And that's true everywhere. Every place that we try to offer some new technology or capability, eventually you get to a question of like, okay, well, can we find a contract vehicle? And whose budget does it come from? And is it R&D or is it O&M? Who could fund it? And like, you know, who can work on it? And, you know, how do I get a bill for this? And it just, the tax on productivity 
of the lack of psychological safety on the one hand and the lack of established clear systems and processes to make things have less friction means that every one of these formations you're evaluating is operating at like 20 to 30% of their capacity. Whereas they're competing against massive organizations with thousands of people who are very content to come in at nine and leave at five. Yeah. And they're just, you know, they get, it's time and grade promotion. Like they're just, they're not bad people. They're great patriotic and they're doing their duty. But what they're not doing is they're not devoted to the reinvention of ourselves. And we have to have people that are in the operational forces executing against the plan. We need them. But we don't realize all of the subtle and invisible ways that we make their life easy and we make everyone else's life harder at their expense. And so we think about risk in completely the wrong way. We think about the risk of commission instead of the risk of omission. We think about the risk of disrupting the execution process instead of the risk of missing out on technologies that we need, or worse, going to fight with technology that doesn't really meet the need or going to fight against a competitor that has a different OODA loop than we do yep. and has technology that we don't. And if you think that that is not a realistic fear, you can look at what is happening in the world today and you can see the militaries of major industrialized countries be being challenged and contested by people that are operating their technology OODA loop faster. So the risk very much has to be on appreciating the inability to be a fast follower and a rapid adopter. And since I mentioned Replicator, I'll say what I love about Replicator is not that I'm sure it will work, but it's the chutzpah of it. Yep. And it is the recognition that the enemy is our bureaucracy. And it's not just about autonomy and scale. This version is about autonomy and scale. But I think the underlying substrate that CAFHIX is solving for is using the urgency of needing scale and autonomy as a way to figure out a way that we can reimagine how to do requirements and how to do fielding rapidly. function looks like. So yeah. exactly. So so imagine a world in which in the next two years we make real change in PPPE. We don't take our eye off the ball and like empowering CDO and DIU in these organizations. We push that forward. We've got all of the culture change and passion and capability of a leader like General Brown as chairman, like incredible stuff he did yep. to empower airmen there, you know, innovate or die, you know, change or lose, all that culture. We have all those things going for us. And we add to that the ability to sort of reimagine our requirements and fielding. Like we are set up. Transform the organization. We are completely. set up for success. Yeah. You ask me, am I optimistic? Am I hopeful? I am very optimistic. I am very hopeful. Yeah. We can really do it. If we don't do it, what is the pre-mortem here? If we don't do it, why did we fail? I will tell you, Tyler, we failed because we didn't understand that an innovative leader capable of making these changes and driving through these changes and doing these things is not going to look like the leaders we've had before. Whether they are the Senate confirmed, if we ever Senate confirm anyone, if we're the appointed leaders, in the political class, the non-career SES, it's the SES we're promoting, it's the general officers we're promoting, Frankly, it's the people in the field at every level. If we don't understand that we've got to get the people part right, it will all be for naught. It all comes full circle, man. It sure does. And I mean, as we as we sort of wrap, I'll I'll leave everybody with what I hear is a call to action for leaders at all levels to make sure you're preserving sort of a degree of 
acting as the the heretic and saying, hey, is this the right way? Is there a better way to do this? And as you're not only sort of challenging preconceived notions and the standard way, you're enabling and empowering folks to not only iterate, but also then scale and implement. And if you can kind of create that as a leader, I'm hearing sort of the, the hey, we've got a shot to go drive this forward. And you'll leave me optimistic here too. So right, thanks, thanks, man. Yeah, this is awesome, brother. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird.